if you tell them what you can tell them, you tell them the truth, you know, you only know what you know, you can truly affect the hiring manager's career, which is a great way to sell it also. I mean, career by knowing your industry so well, by being the industry expert, by understanding the whole market, you know why this guy is better than everyone else. I think you can really add you know, more credibility and you can also add to your hiring managers, uh, take away some of his pain. When you're selling a job, you can sell it as you're going to enhance his career because this guy's going to blow it out of the water for you because he's done so well in the past and things like that. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and my guest today is someone I've wanted to interview for a long time. His name is Rich Rosen, and he's the president of Cornerstone Search. Rich has run his own recruiting firm for 24 years and is one of the top billers in the industry, quietly billing $850,000 to $1 million year after year from his home office in Boston. I think you'll appreciate his style, which is plain spoken and unpretentious. He has very definite opinions on things, and he's not shy about sharing them. In this interview, Rich generously shares the specifics of how he structures his day, his planning process, and the daily habits that set him up for success. What I respect most about Rich is that he doesn't pretend everything's perfect. He's very open about the setbacks and the difficult times. You'll hear Rich tell the story about having a terrible start to the year with a devastating 17 dropouts, losing about 500k in fees the lessons he learned, the changes he made, and the actions he took to turn around his performance and start winning again in very short order. So let's dive into the interview. I think we've known each other, or we've known of each other since 2012. We've exchanged emails back and forth, but we've never properly spoken before. So I'm really looking forward to this. Excellent. Me too. Your LinkedIn profile says recruiting top-ranked enterprise software sales professionals and executives for VC-funded software companies. I love how clearly defined your, your niche is. Is that what you've always done, or how did you get into software sales recruiting? When I first started at MRI, I actually did uh, completely different recruiting. It was for nursing homes, directors of nursing and administrators for nursing homes. Wow, that's a shift. Yeah, yeah you know what? My manager... At MRI, wanted me to do that space for whatever reason. I think, I mean, my family that was in the business, so she, I was 22. She's like, hey, why don't you, you know, go for that? I'm like, you know, it's not the most interesting, but we'll give it a shot. And, you know, it worked out great, obviously. I mean, I made two deals in my first 10 days as a recruiter. You know, it was 22, made $40,000. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, it was awesome for a couple of years. And then pretty much that industry pretty much hit some hard times. Most of the big companies went bankrupt. And uh, there wasn't a lot of money in it. <laughs> so I went on my own after six months and then switched to software you know, about a year and a half later, once they all went belly up. And that's what I always thought was more interesting. And here we are almost 25 years later. Brilliant. <laughs> so, hey, I wanted to ask you, since it's come up, how did you choose software? Because a lot of people ask me about how to choose the best niche, You know, what they should specialize in. How did you arrive at that decision? You know, I get the question a lot, actually. And I, I always tell people, find what you're interested in. What do you find exciting? If, you know, there may be the most money in the world in whatever, but if that bores you to tears, you're going to be bored to tears in every job. I find you have to be really be excited about what you're working on. Who are the people you're talking to? Do you find it interesting? And I don't know. I, I mean, I play sales guys, and it's hard to sell things, even for the best sales guys, if they're not that interested in what they're selling. You got to have some passion. That's excellent advice. I agree 100% with that. 
So I was doing some preparation for this call and I came across another podcast you interviewed on with Dwalta Doherty called Million Dollar Biller was the title of that one. How well do you know Dwalta? Like yourself, I've talked to him a bunch online. We did podcast. Um, he's a great guy. I mean, we talk on, you know, the messenger a lot. So he and his wife, uh, Charlotte, have a really cool business recruiting recruiters all around the world. And uh, I think they've got like 10 employees now. They seem to be doing really well. I mean, he's got a good model and interesting side. I know he's been over here in the States a few times trying to trim up some stuff over here. Yeah. And now you've made the decision to go solo. And so I wanted to ask you about that. Why did you decide that you basically wanted to work as a one-person business rather than grow a firm? You know, I've had a couple employees here and there over the years. Um, I've had some virtual assistants here and there as well. Some have done great. I mean, I had one girl who worked for me for like six years and you know, she built over 400 grand her last year. Wow. I just remember watching other companies go through recessions and the owners got so far away from their business that once the recession hit, they're like, holy crap, I've got to actually work again. <laughs> you know, this always scared me ever since I was a little kid. I wanted to work for myself and I didn't want to rely on anyone. Mm. And right or wrong, and probably wrong to a bigger business if you wanted to sell it, the fear of getting away from the daily contact with the client, with the candidates, losing that the ability to get on the phone and that skill because you have five, six, seven, ten employees and you're just not doing it anymore or you're not a good manager. It's hard to do both. It is hard, yeah. Yeah. My whole business is based on a fear of failure. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, here we are, you know, probably 12 months, 14 months away from a recession in the U.S. And I'm willing to bet 75% of the recruiting companies go out of business at least in the States, there's too many bottom feeders and people don't know what they're doing and managers who don't know how to, don't know how to recruit, forgotten how to recruit, or just they've hired a bunch of B players themselves. So, you know, for me, I know if I work on it, it's going to get done. Typically you're, I'll fill the vast majority of roles I get in and, or I won't take them. So that's uh, my whole business is predicated on a fear of failure and living in an overpriced New England state. So. <laughs> wow. There's a lot to unpack there. And it sounds like it goes way back. You said as a kid, you you knew you wanted to work for yourself? Always, yeah. Wow. What, is, what inspired that? I don't really know, to be honest mm. with you. I just knew I wanted to get things done a certain way. And I always got things accomplished that I wanted to get accomplished. And I'm not great at politics. Even in this job, I mean, if, you know, part of the French, if you're an asshole, I'm not going to work with you. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. Here, here. I have the same philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't like people demanding things that I think make no sense. And, you know, in this business, you can walk away from those people. And the more successful you are, the more you can walk away from. <laughs> so it, it feeds on itself. And I, every young recruiter, I just did a podcast for someone else. And I, I told this whole group of real new recruiters, I'm like, the sooner you can learn to walk away from a deal and money, the sooner you can actually start making real money. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in mediocrity at, at best. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting. So I'd like to circle back to what your criteria is to accept a search and you know what you would walk away from. But first, I don't feel we've really gotten to the bottom of this going solo. I mean, it's obviously worked out great for you. And this is the thing. There's not a right or wrong. People ask me, you know, should I just do it myself or should I hire a team? And really only you can answer that question because there's pros and cons to either approach. So to you, like what are the major pros to working on your own that just outweigh the potential benefits? I mean, to work on your own, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to be able to, I wouldn't say miss out on certain things. So I don't really miss out on a whole lot, but 
you know, you got to work at night. It really depends. What's your goal? Is it to make money? Is it to build a business, a sellable business, which I think is very hard in the perm side anyway. But, you know, some people just work better with a team. They just like the camaraderie. Mm -hmm. That's right. I like having very low expenses. And, you know, if I have a bad month, my life doesn't change. I have a bad year. My life's not probably going to change. You know, but I think to, to work solo, you just have to have discipline. You have to have want to get things done. I've got a, dozens and dozens and dozens of recruiter friends who are solo. I mean, their goal is not to make a million dollars a year. It's 250, 300, 400. It's still a good living. And they're very happy. And that's great. I've got, I know guys that have 100 recruiters working for them. And now they're flying all across the country. They're never home. It's their life is even harder because now you're babysitting, which is the biggest problem. I mean, I personally, do not do well with babysitting either. I, I just, I don't like the whole snowflake economy generation where everyone needs to be pampered. And if you don't tell them you appreciate them today, that they're offended. I, I don't have time for it. <laughs> so maybe I'm wrong. I'm old. I don't know. I just, I, I think if you're in this business, you should want to make money. There's very few other businesses that give you the opportunity to make the kind of money you can in this industry. And if you're that kind of person, I think as an owner, it's extremely hard to find someone that is that good and wants to stay working for you. Otherwise, you're training your, your future competition. If you're like a Danny Cahill and you've got, I mean, just an abundance of things to offer your your folks from knowledge and just those great one-liners he has and things like that, it's a different story. Danny is the super charismatic guy and is you know super intelligent. And the leaders that I know like that that are like that, they are meant to build a team. You know, they are great. They inspire. You know, I'm not that I don't inspire folks, but I don't. I just like to get stuff done. And teaching someone the nitty gritty that I was lucky enough just to pick up really quickly. I think in this business, you get it or you don't. And again, makes it really hard to build a proper team. And for me, I work very quickly and get a lot of things done very effectively, very accurately. And I think trying to get people to work at the pace I like to work at, for me, is very hard. If you've got a lot of patience, more power too. I wish I did, <laughs> but I don't. So I, I just know my foibles and I'm very, <laughs> very aware of them, which is why if I find people that really want to work and they don't need their handheld and, you know, I can teach them, tell them something once or twice, Great. But the third time, honestly, I, I get annoyed. Now I'm repeating myself for a third time and I'm missing out on prime phone time, most likely. If I was to do this business all over again, I would love, love to have like a really good trusted partner, which again, is hard to find. And then you've got someone working on the business, someone training and building a business. To me, that would be an ideal way to do it which has its own problems as well. All right. <laughs> I understand where you're coming from. Hey, listen, I have to disagree about the idea that you either get it or you don't. You're obviously a natural. If you've made two deals in your first 10 days and then you took off from there, I think that's very rare. I definitely am the opposite. I was a slow bloomer or late bloomer, whatever the word is. I had the right attitude and the right work ethic. I definitely wanted to make money. I definitely was willing to do whatever it took to get my goal. But it just didn't come naturally to me at all. That's part of why I became a trainer because getting help from coaches and trainers, that made a huge difference to my performance and my development. So I think you're you're like in the 1% that is just a natural born recruiter rich. But the, the difference is you had the drive and the attitude. There's one thing, you're not getting deals done that fall apart. I told you I had my disaster earlier this year. 
I know plenty of recruiters. One, one guy became a big trainer as well and started a big, big successful recruiting firm. His first six months at MRI, the guy built zero. And then the next six months, he built 250 grand. And this was back in the, you know, what, mid to late nineties when that was still a lot of money for billing, I think, but it all comes down to the drive. If you have the drive, you can get anything done. But if you don't have that drive, and, and that's the part that really has to come naturally. Yeah. Learning all the ins and outs of it. I mean, 25 years, I still take training classes all the time. I think you always have to learn. There's never one good way to do things for everyone. There's no good one magic bullet that every recruiter looks for that wastes all their time. Every company, every call, every client has got uniqueness to it. And you always have to learn new new verbiage. And that's why, I mean, to your point, listening to your stuff, other trainer stuff, is great because, you know, it's a different phrase that may work better in situation X. I, I think that's dynamite. Sounds like we're on the same page there, actually. So the reason I called this podcast The Resilient Recruiter is because I truly believe that resilience is required in order to have longevity in this crazy business. You had mentioned to me in an email that you had a disastrous start of the year and you've majorly turned that around. Could you tell me that story? It's funny. I think this has been probably the toughest year I've had in 20 some odd years. I mean, it still ends up being a great year and hopefully I'm going to close a big $40,000 deal in a half in about 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> but I know a lot of recruiters who were hit the same problem I had this year. Perennial pinnacle members like myself who are big billers who literally lost over half a million dollars in what would have been commissionable offers. I mean, my first four months this year, I think I built 30 grand. And I lost, I, I forget the number now because I'm trying to not think about it as much. <laughs> the, uh, but it's the, I think I lost something like 15 or 17 deals. It was some obscene number. And not because it was rushing through the process, not because of anything other than this wacky economy we're in, clients not wanting to buy into the fact that they are not the only game in town. Every candidate was getting three offers. And I would tell the clients, I'm like, listen, here's where their offers are for these other opportunities. And they would come in $10,000 lower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and then we tried every trick in the book with these clients, with these candidates. It was just it's one thing after another blow up. I had one client even rescind two offers. That was 80 some odd thousand dollars in commission. That was done a week before the guy was supposed to start. I've had three people this year, I think, renege on their offers. I think I've had five people in 24 years or whatever it's been, renege on an offer. Wow. So it's been a strange year then, it sounds like. Oh. I don't, I'm sorry to dredge up this painful uh, chapter, but 500K in uh, in deals evaporating. That's 522,000. Oh, man. Me. That's, I mean, commiserations. That absolutely the, sucks. The, the, you know, sometimes you can do everything right and it still falls over. And people are people. Exactly. Uh, we're going to get to the turnaround in a second because I want to hear how you went from that horrific train wreck to actually having maybe for you not a great year, but for most recruiters would be happy to exchange that with you. And uh, your bad year is better than most people's good year. Retain versus contingent. Do you do retain search or is it mostly contingent? I mean, this is part of the turnaround, to be honest with you. Because of all the dog garbage I went through, a ton of interesting stories I can tell you about through these losses. They weren't just like regular losses. They all had some unique stuff to them. So it was really, it was made it really challenging. And I've been 99% contingent in my okay. career. You know, I've done a few engagement searches or retained searches. 
And you know, I just got fed up with it. So instead of doing normal, you know, a lower, you know, 20%, 25%, I, you know, I talked to a bunch of guys from Pinnacle and we're like, hey, listen, how are, how are you guys doing who do more retained and engaged? And what's their price strategy? Talk to some other trainers and stuff. And then, I mean, I just reinforced some of the stuff I knew to try a new model. And I said, screw it. You know what? Instead of being pissed that these things are all losing and I'm failing and I'm wasting all this time and getting nowhere, you know, and I'm pretty strict about what I work on anyway. I took it to a whole nother level and said, listen, it's 28% contingent. If you want it, it's a free for all. And I actually got this from Jeremy Sizemore to give him credit because he's, he's dynamite. So I took it from 28% contingent where it's just a free for all 25% if it's exclusive contingent. And, you know, we'll either do a flat fee or 22% with an engagement fee up front. And you get first right of the candidates in. You know, but you're 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 serious. You want to be a partner. So you want a real recruiter working for you, not some schlep you set of school, or not some you know guy who doesn't know another space, not some guy who's placed you know 700 people in your industry. You know, if you want a real partner, great. If you don't, that's great too. It will cost you more because risk and reward. So I did that and just laid it out there. You know, I love volume. I love being busy. I love having 10, 15 really A class searches to work on. But this year's weird. A lot of these deals are falling apart beyond the 12th hour. <laughs> so I started doing a lot more engaged searches and it led to literally billing, I think 500 grand in the next like four months or something like, I forget what it was, it, you know, whatever the month time went from the end of the year. I mean, I'll do, hopefully I got three more deals I can squeeze out in the next week that will get me to about 700 or so for the year, nice. you know, after the first four months making 30. <laughs> so it was a great turnaround. The clients took it serious. I walked away from tons of searches. I mean, I must have walked away minimum of 70 companies. I don't know. I mean, well over 100 searches. You know, I just walked away from five yesterday, unfortunately. I mean, it was a great search. I know I could have filled them all, but they were so worried about saving their own behind. It's not worth it. I'd rather spend my time looking for A-player searches, A-level searches, and maybe a pile on a few Bs in the background, just so you can feel as a, as a part of your daily routine. But taking these C-level, these C-searches that the client really doesn't care, you got, you're stuck with HR, which I almost never do anyway. It's, you know, unless they really want to be partners, I should say. You know, the HR folks I want to be partners, I love. The ones that just want to tell you no all the time, <laughs> I have zero interest in. <laughs> so that's it. You just want companies that actually value your time. Not that I didn't do it before, but I really just took it to another level, did a lot more engaged. I took contingent searches still. But I tell them flat out, if I send you a resume and I don't hear back from you in 48 hours, I just put the search on hold and that candidate probably off to three or four other companies in my own database. Since I did that, I mean, the fill ratio has gone up dramatically. Beginning of the year was a disaster. I mean, went back to a normal level. And I think this year, the market from what I'm hearing from other recruiters too, it's just everyone's running into the same rat race. Too many recruiters, clients aren't responsive, candidates aren't responsive. Getting the engagement fee, even if it's a dollar, it gets some kind of commitment where it's not just you didn't waste your time. And that's what it's all about. It's just using your time wise. Absolutely. We all have the same amount of time. Elon Musk has the same amount of time as everyone else. It's how you use it. Rich, on that engagement fee, what would you typically ask for as a deposit? Probably like eight thousand. I mean, my average fee is about thirty. Okay. So I generally try to get 8,000 up front. I just, I don't know. It's just a random number I picked, okay. you know? That sounds good. It has a nice, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like some, I get 10. Yeah. I mean, I got one that gave me 16. Great. 
it was a couple of big searches for you know working for, for pretty much almost for Ben Horowitz essentially at injuries and it's you know it depends on the search the difficulty quality of the leadership team you know all those sorts of factors I think you're definitely going in the right direction I'm evangelical about working an engaged to retain model because it was exactly the same as you it was through finding it so painful you could do everything right and for reasons totally outside your control usually the client's fault right you know, taking too long to make a decision or whatever. And then you spend invested all this time and then you have nothing to show for it. And I just didn't like working for free. So I thought I don't now I, I did a mixture because I also like candidate marketing and, and like you, it's good to have a, have some volume so that you don't have all your eggs in too few baskets. But, you know, so I like kind of 50, 50 best of both worlds sort of thing, but. Uh, it's all about having quality clients. Yeah. I mean, clients that actually trust you. You know, listen, if they've got two recruiters working on it, great. Just tell me. Mm-hmm. But if I find that on my own, mm. it, my interest in working on that will drop. <laughs> you know, I mean, just like when a candidate lies to you. It's like, I don't I don't need you to tell me you love me. I'm the only one. <laughs> just tell me you love me and three others. You know, <laughs> it's okay. That's fine. As long as I know the rules of the game and how much time to truly put into it. Because when you start tripping over other recruiters mm. and other have already talked about this opportunity three other times, quite frankly, you all look stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, the client, you know, all the recruiters working on it, you all lose value. And these companies don't understand that. Again, they're generally not great companies. But but you have, again, if you know the score and you know the game and you know how all the rules work, you can set up a, a little bit better strategy. I like how you said, if I send you a candidate and I don't hear back in 48 hours, I'm going to put it on hold and I'm going to need to send that can- same candidate to two or three other companies on my database. Do you have any other like ground rules that you set with clients as to how you work and that they need to agree to? You know, for me, I mean, that's the biggest one because without communication, you're dead in the water. It's like anything else in life. And those who want to get things done, get things done. I, I have no patience for excuses. They're all bullshit. If you need to get something done, you get it done, period. And especially in today's world, you're telling me you're, you're sitting in the bathroom. You can't text me. <laughs> I mean, just like, I don't really care what you're doing. I mean, tell me, we like the guy. We don't like the guy. It's not the best feedback, but it's a pulse. I don't require a lot. I just require communication. Just if I send you something, it's for a reason. If I send you a resume, it's for a reason. I send you a question, it's for a reason. I'm not going to bombard you. I'm not going to hound you. I'm not going to send you 70,000 emails and texts. It's very limited. I tell my clients who are taking the job order, if you feel that I'm bombarding you, let me know. No one's ever told me I have been, <laughs> you know, but if you think I am, let me know. We'll figure out a better strategy. Awesome. But we need to hear. So let's go back to your your turnaround here. One of the keys was changing your strategy. You created this new model and mm-hmm. started asking for more commitment, money up front. Was there anything else that was a success factor that helped you to really claw your way back? It was really scrutinizing the jobs. Mm-hmm. I think the longer you do this job, the, the lazy you can become and you start to assume too much. So, I mean, I, I literally went back to basics. Like I, I have my old MRI like training manual <laughs> from back in the 90s still, which is still 90% relevant, to be honest with you today. I mean, I just went back to old school basics. I'm a big cold caller. I love still getting on the phone. I think I mean, email and all that great stuff is important. But it's you, know, you have to do it all. You have to do text, email, phone. But phone is still the king. I don't care what any marketer tells you. 
I will argue with them every day of the year. I will outbill anyone that just does marketing and doesn't do the phone calls. You know, so it was just being more selective, going back to old clients, going back to reach out to candidates that I had placed in the past who are now in leadership roles. You know, something you should do anyway, but I got too busy working on these garbage searches uh, or what turned out to be garbage searches, I should say, that I just didn't do it. You are, I wasn't doing enough marketing. You know, the good thing about my business is generally I get enough incoming jobs. I don't do tons of marketing and it's a skill that I feel like I lost. So I just made it a point to get back at it and get better at it again. And it's something I'm still working on, you know, six, seven, eight months. I'm still making sure I do a certain amount of marketing calls or at least emails every single day. Again, it gives you the opportunity to get a lot of jobs and to turn down a lot of jobs. If you place 40, 50 reps a year, salespeople a year, or level you're placing, you're doing pretty damn well. You know, you don't need a thousand, you just need 30 to 50. I think often it's good to hit reset and go back to basics for sure. I'm a big believer in integrating the time-tested classic sales and business development techniques with, you know, social selling and and, uh, inbound marketing and stuff. But, you know, the big inbound marketing companies like HubSpot, they have outbound sales teams. So yep. why would they have? Why would the software company that sells software to allow you to do inbound marketing? Why would they have outbound sales teams if they got all the leads they needed from inbound? They have both. They've got the inbound stuff and they have the outbound stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, I mean, I have a neighbor who's a, who I'm in Boston, so I have a neighbor who's actually she's a salesperson for him. Oh yeah, because HubSpot are based in Boston, aren't they? Yeah, but you're right. Like I hear all these other trainers and recruiters who they just push and push and push, put content out, put marketing out, do all this great stuff. It's all good. It all works. But for those things, you need a team. You can't. I mean, I can't be a solo guy and write five pieces of content a week or whatever, three a month or something. There's just not enough time. And, you know, I can put a post on LinkedIn, have whatever, I got 25,000 connections on LinkedIn. It, every time I do a post, I get, it gets seen by, you know, over 3,000 people, you know, click on it. Even if it's just, hey, I've got this job open. And that brings a new job. You don't need to overcomplicate. And I just see recruiters constantly overcomplicating the simplest, trying to reinvent the wheel, trying to find that shortcut that they think the 9 billion recruiters ahead of them missed, which just doesn't exist. This is good old school, you know, grunt work, you know, sales. I mean, that's it. I'd like to double click on that. Before we do, are you open to the possibility that there's a limiting belief? I don't have time to do content marketing or whatever. No, I think as a solo guy who's not a fantastic writer, yeah, total limiting time. Does it add value? Sure. Every time you get your name out there, it adds value. If you have the time to do it and it doesn't take time away from your research or your calls. And again, this is a limitation of being a solo guy. If you have a great VA, a great researcher, God bless you because they're also incredibly hard to find. But if you've got them and you've trained them well, I mean, that's fantastic. You're ahead of the game. And then that does free you up to write some quick articles and do do those various things. Again, mental set of doing this for so long. I personally feel if it's like nine to, to five and I'm not on the phone, I'm losing money. Okay. You and I can talk off- offline about uh, market because I'm a solo guy as well, but I really, really believe in it. But you said you want to be making a certain number of phone calls every day. What What is that magic number? I try to have, you know, at least 50 calls a day, real calls. I mean, not just calling, uh, you know, the cleaning lady at a company, you know, <laughs> actually calling a VP of sales, a CRO, an RVP, calling the, the key figures in there. And, 
you know, it's not that I shoot for a number. I know one trainer was always like, oh, shoot for 10, you know, shoot for 10 conversations a day. I mean, it's a great number if you need to shoot for it. But I mean, if I talk to five decision makers all day and they, that takes all day long and I get a tremendous amount of value out of it, I mean, that's better than talking to nine guys who aren't interested in their job, potentially. So I don't really, it's not a number I shoot for. I mean, when I started at MRI, it was always 50. When I was a stockbroker, it was 150, <laughs> So, which was phenomenal training for recruiting. I mean, talk about rejection and just dialing for dollars, literally. <laughs> so I talk to people all day long, and I'm sure you do too. And you, most of these people are not getting phone calls anymore, quite honestly. Every day, I have at least one person, if not two, say, I called you back because I get emails from people all day long, but they don't call. Ha, huh, that's interesting. You know, and these are sales guys. I, I mean, I play sales reps. I mean, so these guys are on the phone. They're making calls. Do you think maybe that recruiters have talked themselves into the story that clients don't answer the phone anymore? Absolutely. I think a lot of these trainers and marketing guys, I think that's the big thing they sell. But if you listen to like podcasts, like who's a one I like is like Brian Burns, I think it is like uh, Brutal Truth, great podcast. This guy's an uber successful sales, you know, sales exec, and he tells you all day long, same thing. Cold calling is still king. I mean, it sucks, yeah, <laughs> but you know what? When you actually get through to someone and do it properly, it's really worthwhile. I mean, my neighbors are all big wig sales guys, like the president of Delhi MC Sales. You know, we were at this the Christmas party and stuff, and we were just talking. It's like, yeah, the top guys are on the phone. You know, you got to do it all, like I said. But, you know, you are making the calls whether you like to or not. You've got to be talking to people. It's that simple. When you talk about cold calling, what are we talking about? Because people have different ideas of what that word really means. To me, it's the pure sense of the term. It's literally just picking up people like, oh, your profile looks great on LinkedIn. Let me call you. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I know nothing about you other than what I saw. If you're a client, I, know not, I don't even care if you, have, if you have a job posted. Makes no difference to me. Okay. Looks interesting. I'm pretty sure I can help this guy out. Let me call and, you know, introduce myself and see what makes sense. You know, I do a lot of MPC marketing as well, which I'm trying to get away from a little bit. You know, it's calling anyone and everyone. Hi, <laughs> what can we do? You know? Okay. I like it. So what do you think it really takes to be a million dollar biller, Rich? Because I feel like for many people who will be listening that just seems so far out of reach that it's almost like feels impossible. You know, they maybe are on the phone, they are working hard, but it's not coming together for them. So what do you think are like the key ingredients? I think there's a couple of things. I think one, you've got to be authentic. You can't be phony. You can't be fake. You can't lie. So many recruiters lie, make up stories and lie about their opportunity, lie about the, the candidates. It's all going to come get washed out and found out very quickly. So just save yourself the time and the agony. Tell you the truth. Be as honest and blunt as you can. One, your calls are a lot quicker, so you save a lot of time. And two, you'll move through the process much easier without any gaps, quite frankly. And then also working, there's so many recruiters that try to work a general desk and they're so afraid of missing on a, missing out on a deal. What instead of working on a focused either geo, if you're gonna if you want to be a generalist, I think you're crazy, but at least do it in a geography and master that geography. But ideally, you have an industry-specific niche. You have three or four roles you like to place. That's it. And if someone gives you a role number five, you say, hey, listen, I'd love to work on it, but probably not for me. I can direct you to the right person or I can manage the process, but Joe's going to work on it. But the more your business is set up that every call matters for more than one thing, the better you're going to do. 
I just do three or four roles. I do pre-sales, sales, and sales leadership. You know what? Every one of those three people is going to know someone. You know, they can direct me to someone. So that if the guy's not interested, it's not a wasted call. And then when I'm working on 15 searches or whatever, every time I talk to candidate A, if 14 of those searches may be contingent, who knows, or whatever, half are contingent. I have seven other places to send them, send them to. Or I send them just my my engaged guys. They always do the first right of refusal. But the end of the day is I can send people to multiple places. When you're generic, I find it nearly impossible to bill a ton of money because every call is just one-offs. You're just not focused. That, again, is the simplest way to do it. We've so far, I've got always tell the truth. Number two, focus on a niche so that every call is valuable. They're either going to be a client or a candidate, or they're going to refer someone to you and you can recycle all those contacts that you build, you can recycle. What else? I mean, basically, if you're becoming the industry expert, you're mm-hmm. the go-to guy. If you're not seen as the insider, mm-hmm. then you're just another vendor. Right. I have client, a lot of the clients I ended up picking up in the later part of this year were some I called, some called me. They were just people I gave great advice to when they were looking. I didn't place them. Yeah. But they called me, not the guy who actually placed them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they knew, I told them the truth. They knew when they deal with me, they're going to get reality. Mm-hmm. They may not like it, but it's the truth. A lot of recruiters tell me they're focused on finding new business, right? And let's say they're connecting with people on LinkedIn, and then someone will come back to them who's, let's say, a sales leader, in your case, and that person's looking for an opportunity. And they're like, I don't have time to talk to that guy. I don't want to talk to candidates. I only want to talk to clients. And I'm thinking, but that guy is going to be a client sooner or later. What's your take on that? Like, how how do you manage? I mean, of course, you only have so many hours in the day, so you can't talk to everybody. But how do you manage a situation where you've got hiring managers coming to you as candidates? Yeah, I've gone through a ton of that right now. There's so much turnover in the software right now. Tons. I try to set up a part of my day, even if it's just an hour, where I get the four of them a day. It's 15 minutes. I tell them, you know, my calendar is only set up all day long anyway for 15 minute calls. And I'll try, I'll try to tell them, hey, listen, schedule time at like four o'clock on Friday, three thirty on Tuesday, whatever. And I tell them right now, I don't have anything for them, but let's talk, see what you're, see what you're looking for. We have a quick call just to get to know them. They get to know me. And I talk fast, I talk loud, <laughs> and they, you know, remember that, you know, and they'll ask me, and I tell them about companies, you know, that are in the space and who to avoid and who, who's good, who's bad, who's a, you know, bunch of scumbags, who sounds great, but the leader's a jackass or whatever. And they appreciate the candor, mm. you know, because some of them are already talking to companies and I get them to tell me who they're talking to. And, you know, I give them my insight if I have it. If I don't know anything about the company, I tell them I don't know anything about the company. That's the, again, it goes back to the earlier point. It's like this business is not rocket science. Be authentic, be real, tell them the truth. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know how else to be. I'm way too open generally. <laughs> so uh, it's just, a, I, I don't have time to remember all the bullshit. Yeah. When I started in this business, a few people told me, Mark, you're too honest to be a recruiter. No way. I was horrified by that idea that, and these were rather recruiters telling me this. And that just didn't, compute to me but uh it's funny because talking to sales guys for all these years the guys that are the biggest you know bullshitters shall we say they may have a year or two that's great they they may even have a career that's great i mean there's some there's exceptions to everything but the vast majority are flashing the pants every year they're they're hustling because their clients don't use them again you know with the good ones 
you know, they can walk into the same 15, 20 accounts every year for every company they go to and know, hey, this guy was was straight up with us. He, he told us the good, the bad, and the ugly. No matter what you're placing, everything you do for these clients is basically going to reflect on them. And it's going to be something to enhance their career or hurt their career. And it doesn't mean, hey, listen, every placement's going to be perfect. But if you tell them what you can tell them, you tell them the truth, you know, you only know what you know, you can truly affect the hiring manager's career, which is a great way to sell it also. I mean, yeah. career by knowing your industry so well, by being the industry expert, by understanding the whole market, you know why this guy is better than everyone else. I think you can really add you know, more credibility and you can also add to your hiring managers, uh, take away some of his pain. When you're selling a job, you can sell it as you're going to enhance his career because this guy's going to blow it out of the water for you because he's done so well in the past and things like that. That's a piece of gold right there. That's a gold nugget because most recruiters, when they when they think about helping their client to fill an opening, they're not thinking about how that placing the right person could actually enhance their hiring manager's career as well, not just the candidate. Absolutely. It's a great line. Uh, I mean, it's not really just a line, but it's a great piece of information to pass on to these guys. And it gets them thinking about themselves, which is really what you want. And how this is going to make how you're going to make their life easier and better and less stress, more time they can spend more time at home with the family if they wanted to. Or can you just paint me a picture here of what when this would come up and what you would actually say to the client? It's just you get in a conversation about hey, what's you know talking about the job and their pain and why they're looking for this role, and then they're like, ah, I'm not looking for a recruiter yet. I, we we you know we're still we're still using internals or we're still doing this. And it's like it's like Mr. Client. I mean, listen, I mean. You're the one with the pain. You're the one that's not home with your kids at Christmas time. You're the one that's not doing X, Y, and Z. If I can bring you the right person, which I I've done seven hundred other times or whatever, and I've got this track record of X that's helped all these other hiring managers really launch their career because their sales teams have overproduced. They put them in the right light. You know, it's not only filling this role; it's helping you advance your career if you want to get to the next level. And that's how you have to look at it. You know, if you want to rely on your internal team or some new recruiter or just your LinkedIn job ads, I I mean, good luck. But we'll probably talk in six months when you're looking for a job. You know, I mean, right. And, you know, you just say it matter of fact and it usually resonates. And then and then, you know, the good ones, you know, the ones that you end up working with have the uh, the onions to go fight with their boss or HR to actually get someone help because. You know, for sales guys, I mean, on a million dollar quota, every month that seat's empty. And so I tell them, you're losing over $83,000 a month in revenue. Right. You know, per seat. And that's, right. you're going to quota on it. So I'm sure Susie in HR cares about that. You know, she's making her 50 grand or whatever. I'm like, I only get paid if you win. <laughs> so I'm on the same team as you. You're losing money. I'd like to make money. I know the players, I know the space. Let me help you out. It's investing in your own future and taking some control. I love it. So I've crunched the numbers here. And if your average average placement is about 30,000, that means you need about 33 deals a year. It's quite a high volume. So that's what, three a month, let's say. You also mentioned something along the lines of like, you've turned down about 100 searches. Where's all this business coming from, Rich? I mean, I know that you're on the phone a lot. And you're getting repeat business because you've been doing this for 20 plus years. But where does the majority of your new business come from? I mean, honestly, most of my business comes from repeat clients. Okay. But 
like every recruiter at one point in their career put all their eggs in too few baskets. <laughs> you know, yeah. I made that there. years ago and it bit me hard and you learned a lot of lessons from that. So I get a lot of inbound. It's really the most of it. I've probably done more outbound calls this year for jobs than I have in years, which is a big mistake. And I would, I would tell everyone, Sarah, you should be hunting for jobs every day, even if it's only five or 10 calls a day. There's another guy in, in Pinnacle. I mean, he also does big seven figures every year. Every day, he does 25 marketing emails. He has, he has a team. So he has his admin, you know, get the list. He'll, she or she will send it out. It makes for consistent business and you're not riding the up and downs of a wave. You know, but the, the goal is to get enough clients that trust you, respect you, and will call you when their openings arise. So you're not chasing. You can spend more time working on jobs than chasing for new jobs. I've actually forgot how fun chasing for jobs can be. To be honest with you, <laughs> it's uh, um, so I, I'm actually rather enjoying getting back to that side. I've got plenty of jobs to work on, but now I'm just making sure I'm, you know, really hunting for jobs because it's it's it can be a lot more fun sometimes than trying to sell someone an opportunity, but then trying to sell you to someone. A lot of it's referrals. I get, you know, it's a lot of, you know, inbound. I mean, that's what you want to build your career to be. You know, you don't need a thousand companies to work with. You need like 20 to 30 good companies and you'll have more business than you can generally handle. So is that your kind of goal to have 30 client companies that uh, rely on you to fill their openings? It all depends, to be honest with you, because I deal with growth companies. So like I've got one client next year, they already told me they're going to go from 25 to 85 people next year. I've got another company, 40 to 85 people. They're not all the guys that I'm going to fill. You know, not all my roles, but I mean, I'm pretty confident if I don't make 10 placements out of those two companies alone, you know, I'd be truly surprised. You know, I've done other work for them already, helped build them, them up early, but it's a third of where I want to be. Yeah. You're always looking for that next great opportunity. In my space too, companies get acquired. You know, I had one year where I had like five of my best VPs, all either companies get acquired, get let go or whatever. A lot of jobs off the table for you all of a sudden. So, right. so we work to try to get them placed and, you know, you get them placed, then you build their team. So it's a great cycle. So Rich, it seems like you're extraordinarily productive. How do you structure your, your day? I work out of my house. So I get my kids to school. I go to the gym, eight o'clock. I'm generally, you know, on the phones, you know, or just finishing up going through emails. And I, I generally don't block my day out except for, you know, I'll leave like an hour for, VP calls that are looking for jobs that I can't help. You know, I mean, I try, I literally try to respond to everyone. And I think most recruiters don't, to your earlier point. I think even a quick email says, hey, listen, just send me your resume. I would love to talk to you. I don't have the time or the openings right now that fit the background. At least you give them some respect. And people remember that. Other than trying to block out an hour a certain day here or there for executives that I think are worth talking to sooner than later. You know, I try to do jobs like I work all over the country, so the U.S., so I'll do East Coast calls in the morning, you know, central calls, maybe, you know, if I want to switch up to a different job in the middle of the day and maybe 11 o'clock in the morning, I'll start calling West Coast executives if it's for some job hunting. But I mean, I'm pretty much nonstop. I'll take a little break for lunch or whatever at noon, and then I'm just back at it till 5, 5.30, go exercise, do something again. And, uh, and my kids are teenagers now, so they don't really care from around. <laughs> so it's not that important. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll have dinner and then they're off doing their iPad things or whatever the annoying things teenagers do. And that's it. But su- Sunday nights I plan, like, you know, it, you plan every night. 
starting Sunday during, you know, the football games or whatever. Generally do research and have my day be planning up until 10, 11 o'clock at night every night. Wow. So you spend a lot of time planning. What does that involve? It all depends. If I've got great job orders to work on, it's just doing research. Here's all the guys for company A, company B, company C. Get them into the database. Get finding their phone numbers, finding their emails. Shoot them an email out the night before saying, hey, I'm going to give you a ring tomorrow. Or just saying, hey, would you be interested in a potentially better opportunity or whatever? And then I'll call them all the next day. So it's not a total cold call. For some it is, because who knows nowadays whether the emails <laughs> get opened, whether they work, whether they, it's the right email, they still check. To the other email part, all those recruiters that just live on email, unless you're sending it to the work email, and even that you don't know if they're getting. The email you're sending it to, you don't know if they even look at it anymore. <laughs> Everyone's got 15 email addresses. Just rinse, wash, repeat. So when you say planning, what you're really doing is researching who you're going to call the next day. You're literally just doing all the research work. You're, you know, clients, okay. candidates. And that way, when it's phone time, there's no digging through LinkedIn. There's no digging through the internet. It's like, who does this company really compete with? Who is there? What's their competitors? No, it's all right there. It's time consuming. It's grunt work. It's not the f- best part of the job, but you learn a lot doing it. And you're always finding some neat little fact or figure about something that you can then later use in a conversation you know, with that client, whether it's industry or it's just like a great restaurant you read about in you know, some little podunk town they live in. <laughs> so. Richard, I think what you just said is key that you're separating out your research time from your phone time because they're very different modes of energy, right? And uh, I think too many recruiters, they'll make one phone call and then they'll go on LinkedIn for another 20 minutes and then they'll make another phone call. Whereas it sounds like you're more in a flow. So you're on the phone basically all day and you do your research in the evenings. How do you maintain that level of, uh, of energy? I, I don't really know. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it, 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 I, I, I really think everything in my life derives, and it's probably unhealthy, but it really derives from a fear, a fear of failure. You know, I exercise a lot, not because I want to be, you know, Mr. Gym guy, but it just gives you energy, especially working in the house. It gets you out of the house for a little bit. You know, I don't sleep a lot. I don't need a lot of sleep for whatever reason. So I'm up early. I like to get out. I like to get stuff done. And it goes to my earlier point about no excuses, no wasted time. You know, and I drilled this into my kids who, you know, at 14, they get to get a real job and go work and earn money and do whatever they got to do because you never know what, what's going to happen. You have to be on the go. I was actually talking to a, a trainer too. They were like, you got to, they're trying to slow me down. So, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> do you read business books and sales books, stuff like that? What are you reading right now that you're enjoying? I don't read a ton, to be honest with you, just because there's not a lot of time, but I, I was on vacation. I just read Fanatical Prospector. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is good. A little, little repetitive, but the overall even points are great. But I, I do listen to podcasts. I really like a lot of the uh, podcasts out there. Like Jeb Blunt's got a great podcast. Ryan Burns has a great one. The Brutal Truth, which is great. And uh, The Art of the Sale is Art Serbex. I think it is really good. Oh, Art Subcheck. He's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah Jeb Blunt and, uh, and Art, those guys go back and forth. I think they're buddies. But, they're, but like, I listen to their stuff at the gym like why I'm working out. And then um, my, I, one of my faves, though, is um, how they built that with Ira Glass. You're the second person who's uh, recommended that. So I'm going to check it out. All three of those are dynamite. Brutal Truth is is really fantastic. Brutal Truth is probably the best pure, like, modern sales guy that's still selling. 
So I like his delivery, but just to how to build the business and for inspiration, Ira Glass is how they built that really is dynamite. Even my, even my 13 year old likes listening to it. So it's uh, cool, but those are good ones. Well, listen, thank you. I've really, really enjoyed this. Lots of great stuff. Appreciate it. You know, this is definitely gonna be a popular one. So thanks for sharing. No, it was great. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning in today for the Resilient Recruiter podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you'll definitely want to check out the full show notes at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. That is the website where you can see the links to the resources that were mentioned during today's episode, the recommended books, and lots of other goodies for you there as well. So go and check it out, www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening and be sure to tune in next week.